Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Estella Rasmus. She is the author of Writing That Gets Noticed, Find Your Voice, Become a Better Storyteller, Get Published. She is a professor of writing at New York University, the host of the Freelance Writing Direct podcast, and former All About the Pitch columnist for Writer's Digest, where she also teaches classes on pitching, personal essay writing, and getting started in writing. She has written about a variety of subjects, health, beauty, fitness, publishing, business, travel, for numerous publications. Her articles for the New York Times and Washington Post have gone globally viral, with more than 500 comments on her New York Times piece, How to Bully Proof Your Child. She has appeared on Good Morning America and has had her articles discussed on The View. She has also taught coached and mentored many writers who have gone on to be widely published in top publications. She received the 2023 NYU School of Professional Studies Teaching Excellence Award, is an American Society of Journalists and Authors Award winner, and was a cast member in the inaugural New York City production of the Listen to Your Mother's Storytelling Show. Welcome, Estelle. Thank you so much, Ronit. It's so good to be here. Oh, it's great to be with you. And I, we have been intersecting and connecting and collaborating now for uh, lots of hard season, what I just said, but in it for a while now, what has it been like two years, I think? Yeah. And we also got to meet in real life at AWP, which was just such a wonderful experience. It really was. AWP Seattle is where I got to see you and we had dinner before. And we're actually collaborating again for a PodFest Expo in January. I'm so excited about that. All about writing and publishing podcasts. And we're going to have in the panel, Zibby Owens, the famous Sibby Owens and <laughs> Bianca C. Marais from The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. And oh my gosh. It's yeah. going to be a powerhouse. We're going to have so much fun. It's very interesting to be able to write and to podcast. And we can talk about that a little bit as well. But let's talk about your incredible book, this wealth of resources, Writing That Gets Noticed. So I'm holding my copy right here. <laughs> but can you just talk a little bit about it for people who don't yet have it? Sure. Thanks so much. So my book is really distilling my 30 years of experience in publishing on both sides of the publishing wall as an editor in chief of five national women's publications and as somebody who was is a journalist and an essayist myself and who coaches people to publication in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Marie Claire, and Style, Chicken Soup for the Soul, I could go on and on. (laughs) And so it's really taking all my tips, tricks, strategies, and perspectives, and boiling it down into 352 chalk-filled pages of my life experience on the page in a way that's gonna help people to find their voice, develop all the tricks they can, especially in the era of when editors are ghosting you and it's so important Mm -hmm. to get noticed, and how to get published. Mm -hmm. And you really have distilled it down. I'm wondering how the publishing world or the way you see it and and the 
the terrain has changed in the time that you have been in this field. So you began, I think we talked about this, in the older school way of publishing. Like you were yeah. there in the rooms for <laughs> the magazine times, right? Like, yeah. like, the, the, like the print magazine only, right? Can you talk a little bit about that or is it so broad that it's no, hard to no, pinpoint? No, not at all. Mm -hmm. um, no, so I, I was the editor-in-chief of several publications in the 90s and up until the early oats. And I started at, in the beauty department as an associate beauty editor at Woman's World magazine, which is the perennial print magazine that has 4 million circulation. It's only newsstands sold. And so in that situation, I had seven deadlines a week that I had to adhere to. And what that did was it taught me to write fast. It taught me how to interview experts in the beauty world. That's where I started. And it taught me how to work within the space to concisely tell the story or share the service. And in my book, I have a whole section, chapter four called At Your Reader's Service, which talks about service journalism, which is writing that helps improve your life. So it's when you see a money story or a psychology story or a parenting story that offers tips and offers expert advice and tells you and suggests what you should do. And that's how I honed my teeth on publishing and also learned how to tell a story to get attention you know starting with an anecdote bringing the attention first and foremost to the front so one could argue this is a memoir podcast we talk yep. about memoirs and writing memoirs etc why do memoirists need to know about your book writing that gets noticed and the reason i brought you on aside from the fact that you're my friend and fellow podcaster is that a lot of memoirists are writing companion pieces either before their memoirs are in the world or once their memoirs are about to launch and i was hoping you could talk a little bit yes. about companion pieces and then also what memoirists no matter what they're writing should or would do well to keep in mind about getting into these journals and these magazines right so what i'm really glad about is i know your podcast is let's talk memoir but i actually part of my vision for my book was to include stories from my life so there is a memoir component to my book i talk about dealing with infertility i talk about when i lost my creativity after childbirth i talk about the the, the experiences that i had in traditional print publishing and i talk about even finding love in midlife and <laughs> you know uh, so that was really important to me that my book wouldn't just be kind of a how-to there's a lot of how-to in it don't get me wrong mm -hmm. but it's also my stories that frame it all mm -hmm. throughout and that was really important to me and i'm so glad that my publisher new world library agreed with my vision mm -hmm. for the book and so the memoir 
aspect of it is there. And I'd like to write, I'm actually working on a memoir. It's probably going to take years, but I'm working on a memoir they always, as well. They always seem to take years. <laughs> I should probably add up all the years that people say and get sort of the median because some people are at the 19 year mark and some people just do in two or three years. Okay. So this whole thing about companion pieces and getting, because I think this is the thing for me. I feel like to write our memoirs, to write these very personal narratives, we need yes. to dig in deep and we need to, a whole bunch of things, get the craft yes. going and to really excavate, look at our patterns. But yes. there's this whole other side, which I think sometimes we don't keep in mind when it comes time to marketing our books and getting our stories out there. And that's what I'm hoping yes. we can talk a little bit about. So I know that they're being called companion pieces, but I don't, I think of them more as supplemental essays, right? They're not really companion because they can take any offshoot or part of what's in your memoir and talk about it. For example, I can write a piece about dating because I was the dating diva. In fact, I wrote a piece for the New York Times that ended up in Tiny Love Story about being the dating diva. So that is in my book. I could write about health because I dealt with infertility. So it's really supplemental and it supports whatever the book you're writing. And I think it can be very helpful because again, what you're doing when you're publishing these pieces is you are getting the word out. You're getting attention on you. And memoir is lovely because memoir is strictly focused on your story. And it's not necessarily, you could do a supplemental reported essay, which pulls in statistics and polls and maybe expert advice. And that could still be connected to a memoir. It mm -hmm. could still be connected to something you're doing. For example, your book on cults. I mean, you could write a reported piece that pulls in the latest information about what's happening with cults in America and then tie that to your story. So there are so many ways to do these supplemental essays. Mm -hmm. And I think that what's great about it is you can start with an exciting anecdote or an inciting incident from your memoir or something that will get the reader's attention, a compelling quote, a statistic that's maybe even a little scary mm -hmm. and that gets the reader right into the story. And so that really does help because at the very end, usually in the byline, you can say that the book out now is blah, 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 with a blank, with the mm -hmm. link. And so I think that that is just another great promo opportunity. There are many. I mean, mm -hmm. I think podcasts are one of the best ways to get the word out about a memoir or about a book that you're writing because it not only gets the reader directly, the listener directly involved, they're hearing your voice and with voice, you're getting mm -hmm. nuances. And that also brings me to voice on the page. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when you're writing a supplemental essay about memoir, your voice is so strong because that's what sells an essay 
to an editor, and an editor is your first reader. So you have to capture an editor's attention, and you do that through showing your voice on the page, your turn of phrase, how you write, and how your idiosyncratic way of looking at the world is. Maybe you're somebody who says, oh, my boyfriend's eyes have the color of blue denim, you know, like, <laughs> like an old familiar, worn, something like that. Or you say, my boyfriend's eyes are chaotic, you know, are blue, like the chaotic ocean tossing <laughs> you in a turbulent wave. I'm, I'm doing a little hyperbole there, but the idea is to get your personality on the and page. And who are you? And then there's this other part of it, which I think we got to talk about in person when I saw you, a little bit about, and, and I'm kind of feeling my way into the question, about solving a problem for an editor, you know, like, yeah. or solving a problem for, uh, or filling a niche or a gap, right, for an agent. Like, I think whatever it is that we're doing, this idea that, you have to show the people who you're trying to pitch why they need what you have. Right. And and that goes to, it's really interesting because I started when print was king. As we know, print is no longer king. In fact, you will get more eyes if you write something that's digital, that's online. It's just the way of the world now. Niche publications still work for print, like I write for Writer's Digest. I write online and I write for print for them. And that's a niche publication, so it has a specific targeted audience, but the general broad print publications, they've really gone by the wayside. Mm. And so today, and I wrote about this for um, Quartz, our attention span is so much shorter than it used mm. to be. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we have to get to the point quicker because everything is getting to the point quicker. And you mm -hmm. have teenagers, like you could see, like what I do, the swiping and the constant clicking mm -hmm. and, and going on. And if something loses their interest, they're on to the next thing. Well, adults are that way too. It's really becoming endemic. And so you have to make sure that the hook of your piece, that the something provocative, the language, the way that you are phrasing it is going to get the editor's attention. And that's why I talk a lot about great opening sentences mm. that can really make an impact. Mm -hmm. How long had you been thinking about writing this book? Uh, and when did you know that it, you were ready or you were going to start pitching it? Yeah, you know, I started teaching at NYU back in the early oats, I was teaching writing about health and beauty for magazines. And it was in person. And I loved it. But I talk about it in the book, I went through changes after 9-11, publishers pulled in publications, they weren't launching anymore. And I pivoted into medical education. And while I was in medical education for seven years, I learned really well how to work with PubMed and Medscape and learn about studies and how to work with research. And so I started specializing in doing a lot of health writing as well. And I had a background as the magazine editor-in-chief of the American Breast Cancer Guide, and I had written a lot of health 
uh, pieces, but I went even deeper. And I share in my book a lot about how to find research, how to vet experts, how to find data, the exact websites that are credible that you can look at, rather than going on to Google and just taking whatever comes, which could really be a sponsored by a company that's not mm -hmm. going to be credible. So when I started teaching again, at NYU in 2019, um, I was teaching writing about midlife and I was teaching writing parenthood and um, I started teaching micro memoir and I think that's where we became connected. And so I ended up keeping notes of everything that I had been doing and I had been writing about writing for a number of years. I wrote a column for Forbes and I shared a lot of writing advice in it also. It was about second gigs. And I also had been writing throughout the years about writing. And so I kind of kept all that. And I thought, because my students said to me that I'm like a literary fairy godmother, because <laughs> <laughs> they, they found me, they find me as somebody, because I have the perspective of my life experience, I can be generous with my advice. I can really want to help them get to the next level, and they do. And I'm really in their corner, and they feel that. And I thought, well, they feel it individually. They feel it through my classes. They feel it when I speak at ASJA or Writer's mm -hmm. Digest or, or Irma Bombeck or Hippocamp. But I wanted to get it out there in a larger way because I have a motto and my motto is, and this is an old adage, so I'm not making this up. It's just something I adhere to. If you buy someone a fish, you feed them for the night. If you teach them how to fish, they can feed themselves for the rest of their lives. And that's what I wanted to do with the book. And so I started thinking about it really probably during the pandemic and had my notes together. And it was just a confluence of events. It just all worked together. And I do believe, I do believe in synchronicity. I believe when something is meant, it's meant. I ended up with the right publisher for me. And I talk about it in my book about how when I was first starting out and I was in advertising and I was really in an administrative role, I wasn't even, even after college. Mm. And I was at, a, I found a new age bookstore and I found the book by Shakti Gwain called Creative Visualization. Mm -hmm. And it really changed my life, Renee. It really did. It made mm -hmm. me see that your thoughts can create your reality. And so you need to pay attention to your thoughts. And my husband always says, where people see boundaries, I see none. <laughs> and yeah. It, yeah. And I well, really I think it's your passion. I mean, I do think that that's part of the reason you are beloved as a teacher and you win these awards as well from the places where you teach because you have such passion and investment in what you're doing. 
Thank you. I do. And that's another reason that I decided to also do a podcast. And I love doing freelance writing direct. And you've been a guest on my podcast. Yes, I, I love I love you. that we've connected that way. And also we do need to shout out to our amazing yeah. editor, Haley. Yes. Haley Hayhurst. Oh, that's right. And Haley, so <laughs> fabulous. Thank you. And so what I love being able to do, because I have this background in service journalism, sharing information, advice, and actionable tips that will improve your writing life is a big, is the backbone of what I do with Freelance Writing Direct. Whether I'm talking to Cheryl Strait or Harris Faulkner or Ann Hood or writers who are working within a niche like mm -hmm. Stacey Freed, who does more home writing and all different places and assigning editors because I created the Editor on Call series for NYU where I speak with editors and I also speak with editors regularly. So yeah, they... I know you're very, very connected with them. And I think that's amazing because you had me into your NYU class yes. to talk about the Citron Review yes. and, you know, micro nonfiction. So yeah, I mean, you're just, you do so much and I don't actually know where you get the energy. Um, I'm sure your husband wonders too, or although maybe your husband has a lot of energy as well. I think I've always had energy. I've just always had a need to make an impact, a need to produce, a need yeah. to be creative. And yeah. it comes out, if it doesn't come out in teaching or in writing, it may come out in maybe not as productive ways for me because mm -hmm. I just have to put it somewhere. <laughs> yes, I totally understand that. So let's, let me get a couple of nuts and bolts questions so yes. I can feel yes. like I, I definitely, you know, delivered everything I wanted to. Yes. So, okay. Can you complete this sentence before a writer reaches out to an editor, they should have totally thoroughly researched the publication. You need to know the publication that the editor is representing because the editor knows it so well that that's the first place that you can fail. When I was the editor-in-chief of American Woman Magazine, which was a publication focused on mainly separated and divorced women, if somebody was telling me like their best marriage tips, it wasn't going to fly. Mm-hmm. You know, right. <laughs> well, it also kind of is it's irksome, right? It's yes. a little bit of an annoying thing. Right. Um, so you have to research and know. OK, so that also means like don't just send your piece of whatever you wrote in any genre to just any old place. You have to make sure it's a good fit. Exactly. Otherwise, it looks like you didn't really pay attention. The other thing is have a store if you're OK. So if it's an essay, most publications want to see the entire essay. Why is that? It's because an essay is all about the execution. It's all about how you turn a phrase, how you write it. And editors don't want to have to rewrite somebody's voice. It's not impossible and it does happen. But with essays, the, the bar, bar is high and so you need to deliver. With a pitch, and I teach a lot about pitching, with the pitch, you have to uh, show that you are pitching a story, not a topic. So a topic would be, um, I, I want to write about 
divorce, right? Mm -hmm. And a story would be there is a trend happening in divorce, and I'm making this up, Ernie, but there is a trend happening in divorce where you know, divorces are being held over Zoom with family members attending and sharing their stories, sort of like a wake for a marriage, right? Mm -hmm. And not only is this happening in the local community, but this is a, a nationwide situation. And so-and-so expert can talk about it because the new book coming out, you know, My Zoom Divorce focuses on this new trend there you have a story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about personal essays? And I'm, I'm mentioning yes. this because they can kind of overlap a little bit with memoir essays. So can you share three tips for writing powerful essays? So, okay. So a per writing a personal essay works best when you can write about a topic that you're passionate or obsessed about. It's a great venue for testing an appetite for a memoir in, in progress, in mm -hmm. fact. And it's also a byway to landing prestigious bylines and awards. So my students have written about losing a sibling from opioid addiction, the trauma of adoption, teaching their kids about consent. I wrote a bit about a devastating ectopic pregnancy, becoming a mentor to millennials, and predicting that my future husband would be from another country. So here are some key aspects of first-person writing that I like to share with my students and that I cover in my book in the several chapters that I have on essays, including analyzing essays like A Modern Love from William Dameron and essays, for an essay from Salon, a beautiful essay from Salon. Um, so create a flow. A good personal essay has a narrative arc. It's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it offers a deeper truth. Um, it could be helpful to focus often on one person, relationship, memory, moment. And you should write it as if you're writing a scene for a movie with lots of description and detail. And studies have shown, and my book shares a lot of like the science behind writing as well. Studies show that if you share detail and description and evoke emotion, it gets the reader more invested. And to the point of detail, you need to write sensory language. So that's talking about the sight, sounds, touch, or taste, and what it invoked. Instead of writing that you ate a muffin, right? As I devoured the tart blueberry muffin, I recalled the time I caught my ex-lover feeding the spongy confection into the grasping mouth of another woman. Okay, <laughs> that, that is a scene. That paints yeah. a picture. It's not like I ate a muffin. Um, and, and I'm a big advocate of finding words that work, right? Because again, it's all about getting noticed. We've seen the word amazing and great and terrific and joyful so many times that our brain kind of just blips past it, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you say instead of that, um, you know, it, happy can be elated or jubilant. Instead of walk, somebody might sashay or saunter. 
active verbs are great to use in essays. And my final tip, I think I went a little bit more than three, but that's okay. No, I, lo I love it. <laughs> is leaving the reader with a gift, right? The reader should get a universal takeaway message showing that some transformation or learning has taken place. So I wrote, uh, I'm going to use an example of mine. I wrote this ending for the New York Times essay on how I connect with my dad who has Alzheimer's by singing to him. So this is how I ended. So as I face the finality of losing my dad, I will hold on to him as long as I can with music as our guiding force and new language. Song will let us linger in his past until the wave of Alzheimer's overtakes us both. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. When did you write that? I wrote... When was that published? Yeah, that was... I want to say either 20, I think it was 2020 or 2021, but that was one of the last ties, you know, the ties yeah. column for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And it was called Singing My Dad Back to Me. I'm mm -hmm. just looking at that, looking for it now. November 16, 2020. That's mm -hmm. when it was. And so the one other thing I want to say is titles really make a difference. I've I talk to editors, as you know, all the time for freelance writing direct for NYU. And if you can put in a compelling title that evokes emotion, that makes people care, that can make a big difference rather than saying something like, like I had a student who wanted to write about you know, the therapeutic, how, how therapy, people are making changes to therapy very quickly. So it's something like, you know, therapy is changing in today's new world. And I, and I suggested saying when therapy is like Tinder. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think we all can use a little bit of this pizzazz you have, this little <laughs> magic wand fairy dust for Aww. zhuzhing our stuff up. I think we can get really down in there to write our stuff, but then we need to think about how can we get it into the world, into the right hands. And I think that comes, again, you know, Malcolm Gladwell said you need the 10,000 hours. I put in my 10,000 hours when I was a magazine editor-in-chief doing the cover line you know for the issue for every issue and for every story and so I can use that to help my students with their titles and again breaking it down I break it down and I give tons of examples in my book of how a title can work and examples of titles that do work and why they work and I think mm -hmm. that's so important to be able to show and one of the things I do when I edit for my students I don't just make the corrections I think a lot of editors just go ahead and make the corrections I not only do that I tell them why I'm making the corrections and why it works with what I'm changing so that they can learn at the same time Mm-hmm. In these last few minutes, is there any last words of advice you'd like to give to memoirists that they should keep in mind when writing and pitching their manuscripts or short pieces? Any last bit of advice for memoirists? Yes. So, so the usual is what Anne Lamott says, you know, you own everything that happened to you, tell your stories. Um, and she actually didn't say if people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. It's sort of like a combination of what she said. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is, 
keep in mind that memoir, William Zinser, author of On Writing Well, said, memoir isn't the summary of a life, it's a window into a life, very much like a photograph in its selective composition. It may look like a casual and even random calling up of bygone events. It's not. It's a deliberate construction. And it's really true because you need to find a way to elevate the interior story. And I'm a big proponent of Vivian Gornick, the situation and the story. And she talks about, you know, there's the external, but then there's the internal. And so you really need to show what is the emotional implication at the heart of the story. And a great way to do that is to look at tiny love stories in the New York Times. I know you've had one, I've had one, and I've had many students who have had them in there. And they're really like, it shows an emotional situation with an external event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Now, Estelle, where is the best place for people to find you? Which is funny because you're everywhere and you do so many things. So where's the best place to, to link up with your work? Sure. You can find everything about me at Estelle, E-S-T-E-L-L-E-S as in Sam, Erasmus, E-R-A-S-M-U-S dot com. And if you subscribe to my newsletter, you will get a pitching guide. And you can also go to my Substack, which is estellesserasmus.substack.com. And in there, you will find editor interviews. I have an interview with an editor from the New York Times. I have information from an editor from the Washington Post. I talk about editor and call event. And I give craft advice as well. And I've started adding in because editors are always emailing me. So I've added in editing opportunities to be in different publications that usually pay well. So, and I would really, you know, I, I do this. I also have freelance writing direct where you can find all that information. You can go to estellesrasmus.com forward slash podcast. And I'm everywhere. Like you said, on <laughs> social media, I'm on, let's see, TikTok. My, my daughter, my 14 year old daughter does not think I do TikTok well, but I try. <laughs> and so I'm on TikTok, Instagram, X slash Twitter at Estelle S. Erasmus. And you will find me giving writing advice, curating content, sharing my students' work, sharing colleagues' works like yourself, and talking about all wonderful things, writing and publishing, which I love. And bottom line, I'm a storyteller, and I have a lot more stories to tell, and I like helping my students tell their stories. And through the book, I hope that I'm doing that. I'm really excited about having my book out. Yeah, I'm so happy it's in the world, too. It's like it's one of those books where I look at it and I think, how did this book not already exist? Like, we needed this. <laughs> Thank you know, you. yeah, you. well, I'm just so happy we got to talk and really thrilled that I get to see you, if not before, definitely in January 2024. So, and thank you for taking this time and sharing what you know with me. I'm so excited. I love that Haley's going to be editing this. <laughs> okay, take care, Roni. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, 
please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. 